Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The Military Times reports Lloyd Austin says Ukraine is to get Harpoon anti-ship missiles from Denmark. Denmark will arm Ukraine with a modern Harpoon anti-ship launcher and missiles to protect its coast, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said yesterday after concluding the latest U.S.-led meeting of international defense chiefs to coordinate military aid for Ukraine. This seems to be a very dangerous escalation of the conflict by the U.S. For insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer who served in the former Soviet Union implementing arms control treaties in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm and in Iraq overseeing the, the disarmament of WMDs. Scott Ritter is always Scott. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So it's reported that the announcement came as Russia's blockade of Odessa, Ukraine's largest port on the Black Sea, which is threatening global food supplies. At a joint press conference with Austin, Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley said Ukraine, a major producer of grain, hasn't been able to use Odessa as a transit point for 90 days because of Russia's fleet. But he said the U.S. would not be intervening more directly. I don't know if you noticed this, Scott and Garland, but it's also interesting when you look at the photo from this meeting, as all five Ukrainian flags on the dais were upside down. Don't know if you guys saw that, but all five of them were upside down. Scott Ritter, uh, this to me seems to be a very dangerous escalation of this conflict by the U.S. Yeah, it's uh, first of all, the upside down flag is uh, a universal symbol of distress. So um, maybe it was uh, one of the more accurate things that the uh, U.S. military has done in some time. Um, okay, humor aside, uh, that was just too easy for me to, to, to throw out there. I apologize. The, um, the you know, look, the United States has been under pressure um and so is Great Britain and others, to um, sail their fleet into the Black Sea for the purpose of um, sort of repeating what we did in the Persian Gulf in the 1980s, where we provided um, military escort to U.S.-flagged oil tankers uh, during the tanker war between Iraq and Iran, Um, you know, basically daring the Iranians to... uh, to come out and, uh, and attack the ships. And uh, when they did, uh, they were punished. Um, and so people have been saying, hey, you know, we've got this, this global food crisis. Um, they're blaming Russia, saying that uh, the, the, the ships containing the grain uh, can't uh, leave the port. Uh, so why doesn't NATO, the United States, take their Navy in and tell the Russians to get the hell out of our way. We're sailing in, we're getting this food, and we're leaving because we're tough. Uh, and the answer is because Russia would sink every single one of those ships. Um, that's just the reality of, uh, of the situation. Um, 
And in and, and, and the United States military, General Miley has said, we're not doing that. Anybody who has this hope that we're somehow going to sail in and, uh, and do this, we're not doing that because we don't want a dangerous escalation. And yet, at the same time, um, Lloyd Austin says, yeah, but uh, we're, <laughs> we're going to provide one of the most dangerous anti-ship missiles in the world uh, to, to the Ukrainians so that they can uh, reach out and touch the Russians deep into the Black Sea if necessary. Uh, that is the literal definition of dangerous escalation. Um, you know, and at some point in time, you know, there's going to be a crossover. I think Russia has been extraordinarily mature and patient and resolved not to um, take the NATO bait and expand the scope and scale of their special military operation to do things that one would normally expect a military to do when subjected to grave threat, and that is to reach out and touch uh, Ukrainian um, assets or those assets which are working with Ukraine to kill Russians, touch them uh, where they reside, that there can be no strategic depth, there can be no sanctuary. Um, so, you know, Ukrainian soldiers operating on Polish soil, German soil, uh, don't get to sleep at night because missiles will impact their training areas and kill them. Um, Russia has every right to do this, and um, NATO would not would not legally be able to invoke Article 5 because they have engaged in hostile actions. So they've initiated this. This is not self-defense. This is them paying the price for their actions. And Denmark would take a hit um, because under normal circumstances, once Denmark commits to provide this weapon to the Ukrainians, that weapon, its location, and the people who are facilitating the transfer become legitimate targets. Russia's not doing that yet but at some point the there there will be a a moment when the losses are too much to simply absorb and do nothing and i believe one of those the 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 crossover points would be if a repeat of the moskva takes place the moskva being the flagship of the black sea fleet which uh, has been allegedly hit we still don't know all the details but allegedly hit by two Ukrainian Neptune uh, anti-ship missiles, um, a, a strike facilitated by the provision of um, real-time intelligence that enabled them to overcome uh, Russian radar, Russian defenses. Uh, if this happens again, uh, at some point in time, the Russians are going to say, if we yield to the harpoon, we yield the Black Sea to Ukraine, uh, and that's an unacceptable military uh, outcome. Um, they can seek to target the, the harpoon, but what prevents Denmark and other NATO nations from providing more? Uh, and as we've seen, Russia has not been able to put through a, or, or to create a, um, you know, a, 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 a shield that prevents these weapons from the West from reaching the front lines. We've seen modern artillery, make it to the front lines, and have an impact. And that's an important point. Uh, the, the, the artillery support that the West has provided uh, played a major role 
and the the repulsing of uh, Russian river crossing attempts. Uh, and according to some sources, the Russians suffered significant casualties because of that. So these are having an impact. You know, a lot of people said the Ukrainian Air Force is dead. It's It's gone. It's been finished, wiped off, except that this week, Ukraine has flown an average of 30 combat sorties a day using a mix of aircraft, including SU-24, SU-27, MiG-29, and SU-25 aircraft from six different airfields in Ukraine. That doesn't tell me that the Ukrainian Air Force has been knocked out, isn't a player. It doesn't mean they're winning the air war, but it means they're still there and they're getting this material from somewhere. Somebody's providing them with new aircraft. Somebody may be providing them with well-trained pilots. That somebody may be Poland, um, you know, which has passed some legislation that allows Polish, um, you know, military pilots to uh, redefine themselves as Ukrainians. And the Ukrainian government has passed legislation that gives citizenship to anybody who redefines themselves in this manner. So, all the things that NATO said they weren't going to do in the first weeks and months of this war, they're now doing. And this, uh, this, this is a game changer. Scott, um, I, I know I read this morning that Henry Kissinger was saying that um, uh, Ukraine needs to end this thing with diplomacy and give up, um, give up territory. I think that as the Donbass operation continues and appears at some point to come to a, cl cl a close, it gets more dangerous because as people realize that at some point they're not going to be able to spend that anymore, that, you know, it's a slow, it's a grind, but that's what the Russians do. At some point that's going to come to a, co a close and they're not going to be able to suspend that the Ukrainians are winning. And then they're going to have to see what if the Russians turn next, which is, you know, Kharkov and, and Odessa and things of that nature. I think this is where it gets most dangerous because that's when NATO has to make a decision. Uh oh, we have to admit losses or try to do something such as this to take uh, the to distract people from that. And I think that's when it gets it gets most dangerous. Uh, what are your thoughts? There's no doubt about it. Look, the, you know, for for weeks now we've been talking about uh, since Russia implemented Phase Two uh, that they're grinding it out. They're winning. Uh, they are achieving spectacular victories today as we speak, uh, and they will be even more spectacular victories tomorrow. Uh, they've reached the point in the campaign in eastern Ukraine where they have ground down the Ukrainian defenses. They are punching through the Ukrainian defenses, and they are starting to surround thousands, tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers in cauldrons, um, the pockets. The Ukrainian defense minister is pleading with Zelensky to allow him to order the withdrawal of these forces from these pockets so that they don't lose, you know, tens of thousands of soldiers, uh, because that's what's happening. Um, and this means not only are the Ukrainians suffering more casualties, but it also means that Russia is coming to the end of its legally mandated special military operation. Keep in mind that the special military operation was launched, defined by Russia, to liberate the Donbass and to have supporting military operations necessary to that end. Um, it, 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 either it has already happened or it's just about to happen, but the totality 
of the territory that comprises Lugansk and Donetsk, the two newly independent republics, has been recaptured by Russian forces. Um, it's, you know, the Ukrainians are being kicked out as we speak. Uh, and so phase two is all but over. And the question is, then what does Russia do? Because we have issues like denazification. And we've heard from Lavrov, we've heard from, um, you know, uh, allies of Putin in the Kremlin, that denazification means just what it says. Total denazification, dismemberment of the political parties, uh, destruction of the militarized wing of this, uh, outlawing the ideology. Um, phase two hasn't accomplished that. Hasn't accomplished, it hasn't even come close to accomplishing that. Demilitarization means the uh, removal or destruction of the NATO infrastructure that had been imposed on the Ukrainian military. Uh, there is a significant amount of demilitarization taking place as we speak in eastern Ukraine. But there's also a significant reconstitution of um, the Ukrainian military in western Ukraine and in Poland and in Germany, uh, which is being done by NATO. So in many ways, Ukraine has become even more of a NATO proxy uh, today than they were when this conflict started. So that's failing. And as long as Ukraine continues to be this proxy army uh, to fight in this proxy war between NATO and Russia, because that's where we're at right now. This is no longer a conflict between Ukraine and Russia. This is a conflict between NATO and Russia. And Zelensky uh, has said, you know, he's not giving up territory. He's not giving up the fight which means that Ukraine is not going to be neutral, which is another Russian demand. So we're, we're reaching a point where something's got to, something's got to give on, on, on the Russian side. Either they have a vision for phase two, which they haven't articulated, and you know what? They don't need to. They don't care that we're discussing this and we're confused and we're frustrated and we're whatever term you want to use. They don't care. All they care about is winning the conflict on their terms and on their timetable. Um, and I think we all need to be honest that we don't know what their timetable is. We don't know what their terms are. All we can do is look at the data and say it's hard to get to Z, the end of the road which Russia has articulated, by looking at where they are right now because it appears that they're only hovering around JKLM. There's still a lot of alphabet to go. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Jonathan Turley has an interesting piece on his site entitled, How the Sussman Trial Inadvertently Revealed the Role of Clinton in the Alpha Bank Scandal. Turley writes, While most media ignored the testimony of Clinton's former campaign manager in the Sussman Trial, it adds to a damning record on how the Clinton campaign was 
behind arguably the most successful disinformation campaign in American political history with both the Steele dossier and the Alpha Bank claims. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. Ted Roll is always Ted. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Hey, Ted, you know, I, I find this interesting because um, it's like so many things with Julian Assange. It was kind of like the um, the the whole uh, DNC, the, the, it's, uh, the DNC um, controversy. And that was everyone knew that the Clintons were involved and that they were giving Bernie the shaft. And they just said, you're crazy and you're tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorists. And then Assange came out with the evidence and we said, you see, we already knew it in here. I think everybody already knew that the Clintons were behind all of this Russiagate stuff. And it's just kind of I don't know if this is the right word. I'll use this refreshing when you get that this kind of concrete confirmation. Your thoughts, Ted? It is refreshing. But, you know, if the truth falls in the woods, uh, doesn't make a sound. Uh, you know, as you pointed out in the lead, it's not getting any it's not getting any coverage. Um, it's like it didn't happen. And it's uh, really like uh, alternative facts. In Nowadays, the alternative facts are sometimes true. Uh, I do think there is a surprise here. Um, you know, you would really expect there have to have been more plausible deniability built within the campaign. But it really looks like this goes all the way to the top, all the way to uh, the former secretary herself. That's pretty wild. Uh, that part I didn't see coming. Well, there is the adage, never underestimate the blindness that attends arrogance. And I'm wondering to that point if there wasn't more plausible deniability because the plausible deniability was the fact that Hillary was supposed to win the election. And if Hillary wins the election, then none of this comes to the surface. Right. And they were really sure of that. I mean, we know they were sure of that even on Election Day. Uh, the, the whole world woke up that Tuesday morning uh, with, uh, you know, pe people like Nate Silver saying that Hillary had a 92 percent chance of victory. Uh, obviously, that's not how it played out. And it's not how we all saw that coming. Um, but, yeah, they were really sure. Uh, but, you know, anything short of 100 percent, I would have thought would have been too much chance. Uh, you know, uh, Hitler analogies may not be appropriate here, but, you know, to this day, there's still not a single document where, you know, obviously Hitler knew about the Holocaust. But, you know, even he never he was insulated. He never signed anything that said to go kill six million Jews. Um, you know, they, they did it. Obviously, he knew about it. But there's no proof. I mean, you know, you would just think that, you know, people, you know, Richard Nixon also, um, for the most part, was pretty well insulated. Uh, he knew about some things. He knew about the plumbers, but he didn't know about everything. It was kind of like, you guys go do what you guys need to do and kind of leave me out of it. But, you know, you know what to do. Hillary Clinton is just, uh, you know, maybe not that smart. Here's the thing about it, though, uh, Ted, because 
you know, anyone who follows this knows that Russiagate has both fallen apart and it has been revealed that there is a very small group of people. The same Michael Sussman who's on trial now is the same Michael Sussman that hired CrowdStrike. Now, now we know this guy just made stuff out of, up out of the blue. He hired CrowdStrike to look into the servers. The FBI then took the word of CrowdStrike, which would mean, incidentally, that they couldn't prosecute anybody because they couldn't have, wouldn't have evidence that they could would be admissible in court. But and and Sussman also worked with Fusion GPS, the company that created the Steele dossier. So there was a very small, tight group of people who were making up RussiaGate out of whole cloth. Here's the problem. Russiagate is very convenient for the empire. It's convenient for the military industrial complex, the national security state, all who knew who all of whom need Russia as a an evil enemy so that they can justify these giant budgets and all of their empire imperial warmongering. So the problem is no matter how obvious it gets that it's complete garbage, the machine needs it to continue doing its evil empire thing. So the machine always has to cling on to it some kind of a way. What do you think, Ted? Uh, that's exactly right. Of course, this time around, what makes it interesting is there's a Loki in the machine, and that's Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump is still around. He's the most, not only the most likely Republican nominee in uh, two years. He's also, uh, I would say, the favorite to win at this stage. Uh, lots can happen and, and will. But, you know, there's, there's a person who was gravely wronged and feels highly aggrieved and is not very attached, seemingly, to the security state, uh, who is in a position to maybe be able to do something and possibly hold people accountable in the future. If that happens, it's going to be amazing to watch. This might be. I, I I hope this is not the same question that Garland just asked. I, I'm I want to drill it drill down to the more systemic elements of the Department of Justice and the court, and that we are focused on Sussman. We're focused on Hillary Clinton, but the FBI is an organization, and one would think that. This story would get more traction because the FBI would want to protect its reputation as an organization. The courts were lied to on the on some of these uh, affidavits in order. Uh, the FISA court was lied to. One would think that uh, as a system in this process, the FISA court would want to defend itself. But we still seem to be pecking around the edges here at specific individuals and not dealing with this as a deeper systemic problem within the American process. Well, Dr. Leon, you're right. You know, uh, Garland uh, and I both like analogies. I, I think the anal uh, there's a really strong analogy here to the way that the CIA's reputation was damaged in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq. The CIA was used. Uh, they, they provided intelligence to the Bush administration. The Bush administration falsely claimed that the CIA had assessed that Saddam Hussein still had WMDs. That's not what the CIA said. But, uh, they, but, you know, the CIA uh, kind of took the fall there. And I think that's kind of what could happen here with the FBI. 
yes, it's an institution. It's a powerful institution uh, that's interested in it, that has its own prerogatives and is trying to protect its reputation and wants to. But at the same time, it serves uh, even more powerful interests. And, uh, you know, there's divisions within the aid within the agency uh, that are going to you know sort of determine where this lands. Uh, will they end up taking the fall on this, or will they end up uh, bringing Hillary Clinton or uh, people underneath her down? Uh, that that remains to be seen. Well, the other thing is, uh, there's a, another interesting story that's very much related. And basically, the former uh, FBI general counsel, a guy by the name of James Baker, um, who happens to be a Twitter lawyer now, actually, shockingly, you know, who, who would ever saw that coming? But he was rec- he was asked for information related to the investigation, and he held back some critical information. And when he was asked about that, his answer was, well, it's not my investigation. Now, in a way, yeah, that's true. However, we are told that the FBI is seeking justice. And now what we see is now when the FBI sees someone who was working with them, sees an operation that they were involved with, they're literally trying to subvert justice, basically saying, I'm not giving you anything you don't ask for. I'm not going out of my way to help you to me. That is helps to substantiate my argument all along, and that is that the FBI was a, in, it was an operation, and the FBI was part of the operation. And therefore, John Durham's job is to protect the FBI, and his narrative will always be something like Sussman. Sussman, the FBI was deceived by Sussman. Not the FBI was working with Sussman, not the FBI worked with Sussman on the um, DNC servers case. How could they possibly argue that they didn't know he was Hillary Clinton's lawyer when they worked with Sussman as Hillary Clinton's lawyer? Did they forget over a few months? It doesn't make sense. At any rate, your thought about all of that stuff, Ted Rawl. I mean, I, I like that speculation, and I think there's a lot to it. I mean, you know, of course, uh, you could never really go broke overestimating the stupidity of some government bureaucrats. So it might be entirely possible that they were duped. Uh, You know, I think it's probably uh, more accurate to say that there were elements within the agency that were, you know, quote unquote, dupable, uh, happily dupable. So that plays into, uh, you know, your theory, Garland. And, uh, you know, I think it, it certainly that is that is the problem, right, with the narrative is how did they, you know, they knew who he was. I mean, they knew who he was. Everyone knew who he was. So, you know, context is everything. Why weren't they paying attention? Um, you know, they're not journalists. They're investigators. So I, I don't know. It is, it is the problem. And, uh, you know, I don't claim to know what happened there, but it is certainly it is a major, you know, you can drive a, a truck through the hole in that narrative. Here's why I say it. You know, I I worked in a lot of terrorism stuff. I literally worked with the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force. All of those guys had postgraduate degrees. All of those guys were highly educated, knowledgeable people. These guys were OCD to every point, and they could check everything. Having worked with them, here's what I'm going to tell you. It is not plausible 
to argue that people with the amount of knowledge, technical ability and background that they have, that's just not, you know what I mean? It's like saying, you know, the, a mechanic who, you know, who builds engines doesn't know how to change a, a, a tire. It's, it's, you know what I mean? The, I work with these guys. I'll tell you, Ted, they're too good for that. They knew what they were doing. Trust me. It's like Jeffrey Epstein and not being checked on getting in his cell for two hours in a prison where they check on everyone every 10 minutes or every eight minutes. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I hear you there, Garland. I really do. Let me add this because where Garland is going is exactly where I was planning to go with Turley's piece, how the Sussman trial inadvertently revealed the role of Clinton. He writes that this trial that Sussman crossed a critical threshold when he named Hillary Clinton in conjunction with a plan to spread the false Alpha Bank collusion information. The mere mention of Clinton's name sends shockwaves. She was presumed to be untouchable, uh, specifically when the judge in the case framed the issues in such a way to protect her. And so now, even though they went through all of these machinations to protect her, that doesn't seem to be enough. Uh, well, I mean, I would, you know, it's I, I tend to bet on big fish getting away with uh, high crimes and misdemeanors, and um, that's usually a safe bet. So I would say that you know Hillary's Hillary's uh, definitely exposed. She's in danger. Uh, I'm not sure she's quite on the hook. Uh, or that she, if she's on the hook, she can't rig a lot. It's a long way between now and a frog walk into a federal penitentiary. But she's, you know, she, this is a major problem for her. Uh, if there's corroborating evidence, uh, if there's, uh, you know, she, 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 she really could go to prison. If she doesn't go to prison, is she damaged goods in terms of a presidential bid in 2024? I don't think she was going to run anyway, and I don't think she's feasible. Ted Rawl, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Global Times reports Biden's remarks on, quote-unquote, intervening militarily in Taiwan question, not gaffe, but signals hollowing out one China policy. By stating the U.S. would intervene militarily in the Chinese mainland takes the island of Taiwan—I'm sorry— <clears throat> Three, 
1-800-273-7521. By stating the U.S. would intervene militarily if the Chinese mainland takes the island of Taiwan by force, the Biden administration is taking a step further to hollow out the one-China policy, and Biden's remarks led to China's strong opposition. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book, his forthcoming book, is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas, Slavery, and Jim Crow, and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So, President Biden was asked if the United States would defend Taiwan militarily if it is attacked by China. Biden said, yes, that's the commitment we made. We agree with the one China policy, but the idea that it can be just taken by force is just not appropriate. It would dislocate the entire region and be another action similar to what happened in Ukraine. And so it's a burden that's even stronger. There are, to me, Dr. Horn, a number of problems with that statement. It's incredibly incoherent, I think. It's inconsistent and it's historically inaccurate. China has never said they're going to invade Taiwan. How can you say you agree with the one China policy, then you say we're going to invade China if they invade Taiwan? And when you compare this to the Ukraine, the United States fomented the Ukraine problem, to be kind. So he's throwing in a lot of stuff in the soup that doesn't make sense. Dr. Horn. Well, I think that Mr. Biden needs to be looked at not necessarily as a gas machine. That is to say that he puts his foot in his mouth, which he certainly does. But I don't see these recent provocative statements as gas. Not only the statement the other day with regard to China, but the earlier statement fundamentally calling for a regime change in Moscow. I think a better lens through which to view uh, Mr. Biden is either through the lens we used to see Mr. Nixon, his predecessor in the 1970s. That is to say that recall during the Vietnam War, uh, Mr. Nixon said he wanted to be looked at as a crazy man when it came to confronting Vietnam, that that would keep them off kilter and off balance. I think that intentionally or not, and I would hate to think, that the chief executive of the United States is literally a crazy man. That's too uh, ghoulish to contemplate. So I would prefer to think that he's mimicking Nixon, that he would like to think that uh, he would like U.S. so-called adversaries to think that he's crazy. Because certainly it comes across that way when you move from the policy as articulated for decades of strategic ambiguity, uh, leaving wiggle room for Washington, to what can only be called strategic confusion, uh, which in some ways can be seen as much more unsettling. And I take it that Mr. Biden took note of the fact that during his trip to Northeast Asia, uh, Russia and China, rather unusually, had a joint military exercise involving bombers over that uh, same territory, that is to say, in the vicinity. Uh, This was a welcome of sorts, it seems to me, 
to the Quad meeting that was taking place in Tokyo today, the Quad being United States, Japan, Australia, and India, which is a sort of neo-Cold War framework uh, targeting uh, Beijing. But Mr. Biden must recognize that the Quad is fraying at the seams. The Japanese prime minister did not endorse his uh, strategic confusion with regard to uh, Taiwan or a purported Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Uh, after all, uh, Taiwan sits only 65 miles from a populated Japanese island. And even though Japan is trying to raise its defense budget, I don't think it's any position as of yet to confront China, uh, even in league with U.S. imperialism. And then you know that this past Saturday you had a change of government in Australia. The hawkish Tory Scott Morrison replaced with a more dovish uh, Anthony Albanese of the Labor Party, who brought along with him to Tokyo uh, his foreign minister, uh, Penny Wong, uh, who happens to be of Chinese ancestry and is much more dovish towards uh, China uh, than her predecessor. And I think it's also fair to say that uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Sciences, which, as you know, for decades now has maintained this plot with a kind of countdown, ghoulishly enough, to nuclear holocaust, uh, with midnight being the witching hour, probably moves the hands a bit closer to the witching hour and light of Mr. Biden's provocative comments, the only benefit that I can see is that, uh, as you know, uh, I, among others, has been complaining that many of our friends on the left uh, who have fundamentally endorsed the NATO position have looked at the Ukraine with a kind of tunnel vision from Washington to Kiev and Moscow, ignoring the global consequences, particularly the consequences now enunciated by Mr. Biden clearly that Ukraine is only stage one and Taiwan is stage two. And I think that Mr. Biden's comment will force many of our friends on the left to finally confront the bitter reality that the United States, which spends more on the military than most other countries on planet Earth combined, apparently has decided that it cannot compete industrially, it cannot compete technologically, and reference here the fact that China's just rolled out a new aircraft that will challenge Boeing and Airbus. And so the United States has to compete militarily or try to triumph militarily, and that is dangerous for all humankind. Let me ask you this. I'll throw a couple other things at you. Number one, could it be as simple as a reality that Joe Biden, that they all sat around in the room and they all said, okay, we're not going to come out and say X, which is that we're going to militarily defend Taiwan and that Joe Biden now is not capable of retaining that information long enough to, (laughs) you know, reiterate it at the appropriate time, which I think is a possibility. And the other part I'll throw, which is maybe possible, is this. Sometimes when a person's taking a beating, they got to act tough. Recently, the Solomon Islands, the U.S., you know, threatened the Solomon Islands. The Solomon Islands said, nope, we're not. We're going to have this Chinese base in China. The Philippines, um, the Marcos has returned. And although he may not exactly be the second coming of FDR, Marcos is, has said, I want a good 
you know, I want to move towards China and away from confrontation. We're now seeing um, the same thing that happened in Australia, which would imply that at least that the Australian people want to move away from this thing that's tearing their economy to shreds. Could it be possible that either of those things, you know, they're taking so many losses right now, they want to act tough, or that Biden just couldn't remember what the heck he was supposed to say and blurted off something stupid out of, out of his mouth? One thing quickly before you respond, Dr. Horn, Garland, if you are right, and in your questioning Joe Biden's mental capacity, it's even worse than you are inferring because he was reading from a script. (laughs) Go ahead, go ahead, Dr. Horn. Well, let's call that latter point uh, Garland Nixon's corollary on the crazy man thesis. That is to say, uh, our eminent uh, co-host here is suggesting that Mr. Biden literally might be crazy. And uh, I think that that's too frightening to contemplate. But what we do need to contemplate is this idea that Mr. Biden is committing gaffes when he speaks uh, out of turn. That is to say that I can commit a gaffe when it comes to articulating U.S. foreign policy. You can commit a gaffe. But Mr. Biden is the chief, chief executive officer. He states policy. And no amount of spin or kind of cover-up by the staff can dilute that reality. Now, with regard to the Philippines, and I would point you to the disappointing meeting held by the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, who huddled in Washington at the White House just a few days ago. What's interesting is that there were no bilateral meetings with all of these heads of states and heads of government who showed up in Washington. Uh, Mr. Biden only met with them a little more than an hour or two. And so it's quite insulting. And then on top of it, the aid offered was peanuts, $150 million, compared to the billions offered by the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. So what we see is a U.S. foreign policy that's coming apart at the seams, and perhaps uh, Mr. Biden is in the position of heading a basketball team that's subjected to a full-court press, and in return, they can't handle the pressure and are having a collective nervous breakdown. China drums up support for global security push in Latin America as U.S. looks to Asia. China's foreign minister went on the global offensive in Latin America, promoting his country's proposed global security initiative in the U.S.'s backyard as Washington sought to shore up ties with Asia. Let me ask, quickly get your take on that, uh, Dr. Horn, particularly in the context of all the pushback now that Biden's getting from countries in the global south to the to the summit that's supposed to take place in Los Angeles as Biden has been excluding countries that he does not like. Well, you're right on the money. Obviously, this summit in Los Angeles organized by Washington, once again, is coming apart at the seams. You've seen the baby steps towards Mr. Biden normalizing relationships with Cuba, going back to the Obama policy, you see the half-hearted attempt to lift sanctions against Venezuela, which presumably will drive more oil into the U.S. market. But that's going to get severe pushback from Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey, a Democrat. And so I'm not sure how far that will go. 
uh, once again, it seems that Washington's foreign policy is uh, going nowhere fast. What, what I was going to ask you is this. Um, it seems to me that basically China's saying, if you're going to come to our neighborhood and push us around, we're going to come to your neighborhood and we're going to push up against the Monroe Doctrine. How far, you know, what is the U.S. in in the past would be, you know, raising cane and they'd be ready to go to war if someone was talking about a security pact in their in their in their neighborhood. It seems conspicuous that China's saying we're going to have a security pact of some type in Latin America and that the uh, Biden administration is com- conspicuously quiet about it. Well, China is not the only headache that U.S. imperialism may be enduring. People should pay careful and close attention to the glimmerings and the outlines of what we're about to witness, which is that Mexico, the largest Spanish-speaking nation on planet Earth, increasingly is crossing swords with U.S. imperialism. That's the import of the president of Mexico's triumphal trip to Cuba just a few days ago, of his threatening not to attend the Summit of the Americas at Los Angeles if Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela are uninvited. And then Washington may even have to confront the specter of Haiti, oftentimes dubbed the poorest nation in the hemisphere, joining the African Union. And we are already in conversation with the Haitians about using that perch to launch human rights investigations of the United States focused on police terror and racist terror against black people in particular in light of this horrific Buffalo massacre, the headaches for U.S. imperialism proliferate. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT reports Foreign Secretary Lavrov explains Russia's geopolitical strategy. The foreign minister speaks to students about Russia's economic and political plans and further relations with the West. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an American citizen living in Crimea. He's a film director and podcaster, Regis Tremblay. As always, welcome back. Well, thank you. It is always a pleasure and a privilege to be with you. So Foreign Minister Lavrov says that Moscow expects increased economic cooperation with China as the West takes a more dictatorial stance in global affairs. He uh, warned yesterday and uh, saying that Russia intends to build relations with independent countries and will decide how to deal with the West if and when it comes to its senses. Regis, that seems to me to be a very realistic worldview and one that is forged out of a perception of strength, not out of a perception of weakness. Well, I I concur with you 100%. Uh, I read that and I went, wow, finally. And, you know, it comes right on the heels of Tony Blinken 
and this Taylor Swift with that we are never going back together as a message to Putin. And then Lavrov comes out with this, I guess it was yesterday, and uh, I just found it amazing. So I'll quote from that a little bit more than what you just did. He said, if and when the West comes to its senses and wants to offer something in terms of resuming relations, Russia will seriously consider whether we will need it or not. I, I thought that was incredible. And you mentioned uh, moving to China. Well, we've talked about the February 4th agreement, 5,000 word agreement between President Xi and Putin. It basically told the United States, we're going on without you. We're leaving you behind. So I think this was an incredibly important statement coming not from Putin, but from Lavrov, who is highly respected all over the world. You know, the other thing, you know, what I really got from this also is that Lavrov, that Sergei Lavrov was saying this, look, at some point this thing will be over. This too shall pass. And when it does, if you guys are thinking about uh, approaching us for some kind of, uh, you know, let's get back together and we need your oil or gas or whatever it is that we need, we're not going to be too thrilled about doing that. And here's here's what I thought. But what I thought about it, they're not going to be the only ones. I also think that there are a lot of other countries around the world, the African nations, the um, the Latin American nations, the Middle Eastern nations. We see that Saudi Arabia just said, hey, we're back in uh, Russia, not you guys, that a lot of the countries in the world are looking at the instability of the U.S. empire, is looking at the dishonesty of the leaders of the U.S. empire and saying, you know, we've got to distance ourselves from these people because they're not reliable. So that Sergei Lavrov was voicing something that an entire block of the world now feels. Your thoughts? Well, it's the vast majority of the world. You know, the United States has got, what, 30 or 40 countries in its supposed alliance. Um, you know, the rest of the world really doesn't want to follow the United States anymore in, in any manner. And uh, I think that they can see the handwriting on the wall. Now, what's interested, <clears throat> interesting to me is... Uh, with this world hunger, starvation situation that's looming, it's already beginning because of the lack of wheat and grains from Russia and Ukraine, and India saying they're not going to export anymore. They're going to keep it for their people. I was wondering if the get-together might happen a little sooner, because even the United States is feeling that. And even the United States is energy deficient. You know, they're making up with Venezuela, removing the sanctions so that they can get Venezuela's oil. America is not energy independent. They're lying through their teeth about that. So who knows? Maybe if the United States has to get on its knees and plead, um, some of the sanctions, maybe all of the sanctions could be removed on Russia. Wow, Regis, that uh, optimistic is, I think, the understatement of the day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and, the re and the reason being uh, because Russia has been perceived. How, how can I say this? So when you go, when you go 
back through previous administrations with secretaries of state, Hillary Clinton, all the way back, and, and you, you look at the whole anti-Russian mindset that permeates American foreign policy, I, I think you'd be, you'd be looking at just a, an incredible shift in, in ideology in order for that to happen. You, you really think that that could materialize? Well, um, it's certainly a possibility because if, if the pain continues to increase on the vast majority of Americans, and we're going to find out real soon, coming November, how Americans are feeling about the economy, how they're feeling about food scarcity, you know, how they're feeling about rent. And I think, um, well, I don't think that the Democrats, while they're in power now, would absolutely even think about removing sanctions on Russia, because that would show Biden is weak and the Democrats is weak and they won't do it. But I think if this goes on, I think if the pain becomes severe enough, who knows? And let me ask one more question, Garland, quickly. And, and that is, with what I see as a ratcheting up of the U.S. military involvement in Ukraine, which means escalating the conflict with, the, with Russia, it seems as though we're heading in the wrong direction to, to get to where, to where it is you're saying we could possibly wind up. Well, I don't know if you guys saw the uh, New York Times editorial, the entire editorial board on May 19th repudiated the drive for a decisive military victory in Ukraine, and they're calling for peace negotiations now because they believe that this conflict in Ukraine is a lost cause. It's costing America billions and billions of dollars and people are beginning to get tired of this. And they, they, they want it to make it clear to Zelensky um, and his people that there's a limit to how far the United States will go. This was an incredible editorial that represents, to me, a major shift uh, in the thinking of the New York Times editorial board who have been so supportive of all of this all along. I think it's incredible. <laughs> You know, I uh, and I'll tell you how I read that, because there was a similar article in uh, the UK. I forgot which um, particular uh, media outlet, but I read it a little bit differently. I read it as a message from one of the factions in the U.S. to the neocon factions in the White House, because I don't see Zelensky as having any agency whatsoever. I see him as just following orders of what he's told by the Victoria Newlands, the absolute um, hardcore um, uh, warmongers, the Newlands, the the um, uh, uh, Solomons, etc. So I I see it as uh, there are people in the United States who dare I use this term are more realist, saying, okay, this is not going to work out. We see how this go is going. You better distance yourself from it now before it's too late and it turns into an before it becomes obvious that you've you've made great errors. But I, I did want to ask you this. We don't have a lot of time, so I did want to get to something that I know you've been reporting on lately, and that is the Ukraine, um, the influence of the Nazi fascist ideology 
strategy in Ukraine is much, much more pronounced than it has been reported in the West. And um, one of the things you reported on was this like daycare camp that they had for children as young as seven, where they had them, you know, goose stepping and doing the old Nazi marches and all the Azov. And it was actually run by the Azov Battalion. Maybe you could uh, brief us on that a bit. Well, you know, I was in Ukraine in 2016. Uh, on May 2nd, the anniversary of the massacre at the Union Trades Hall. And it, this is what what I observed with my own eyes. The mothers of those who died were holding a memorial in this square right before the Trade Union Hall where it all happened. And they were forbidden to enter there by a phalanx of neo-Nazis. They would not let us enter this huge plaza. So we were confined to a small area outside of that. Coming to this site in our bus with the mothers and friends and some journalists from around the world, neo-Nazis were throwing stones at our bus, rocks. And then I spent another few days in Odessa with a good friend of mine and we were walking around the city and almost every street corner, they were these right wing, the right wing, they really are neo-Nazis, um, spreading their propaganda, having their little vigils, and really um, indicating who, who was in charge there. Now, beyond that, my own personal experience of that, um, I have friends that are in Kiev, a friend who's in Kiev. I have other friends who have been there, lived there, and are from there, who have become exiles. And, and all of them will tell you that this Stepan Bandera ideology, it's a Nazi ideology, there's no doubt about it, has been fermenting ever since the end of World War II when he disappeared, he was in prison and he died. To show you how great his influence is, um, President, uh, ex-President Viktor Yushchenko, on January 20th in 2010, he awarded Bandera the title of Hero of Ukraine. In 2019, the Rada, which is the Ukrainian parliament, adopted a resolution celebrating memorial dates and the list includes the birthday of Stepan Bandera. Furthermore, on January 1st, torchlight processions honoring, honoring Bandera are held every year in Ukrainian cities. And so this ideology has blossomed. And you talked about these camps for these kids. I just became aware of that. And from my research, Right after the Maidan in 2014, these neo-Nazis um, expanded, greatly expanded these camps for kids, 7 to 17. They brainwash them with this ideology. They, tell, they say they want to get these kids thinking straight, understanding their history as a white race, as a white race teaching them to hate Jews, to hate Catholics, and especially to hate Russians. And they're teaching them to use weapons. I posted a bunch of pictures on my Facebook page 
Um, and I did a YouTube show where I posted these pictures. And, and when people see it, they're absolutely shocked. They cannot believe the expressions on these kids' faces, screaming and hollering these chants. Um, so it's real. And, you know, I, I made this comment, guys. If all those virtue signaling, blue and gold, flag-waving people in America could see what I'm trying to show, that what they're doing with their money is actually supporting and promoting Nazism, not only in Ukraine, but around the world. And Regis, thank you for saying that, because Garland and I have been saying that since that $40 billion aid package was passed. We, <laughs> it's good to know that, that we're not just uh, sitting here whistling in the dark. Uh, Regis Tremblay, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And as always, we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. See you later, guys. You got it. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There is another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Haaretz has a piece entitled, Tehran Assassination, Latest Move in Secret Israel-Iran War. While the killing of a Revolutionary Guards colonel seems less like a change of policy and more like an acceleration of hostilities, Israel appears to have shelved any attack plans against Iranian nuclear sites. Is this a fair assessment of reality? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. He's also an analyst. Laith Marouf, as always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. It's always my pleasure. So is this really a change in policy or can the Zionist government in Israel walk and chew gum at the same time? Well, you know, for if you look at the history of this engagement, it's clear that the Zionists were never capable of attacking the Iranian uh, nuclear facilities. That's because they don't own their own uh, fueling uh, tankers that can help their uh, fighter jets come back safely home. And of course, they will have to fly over m much of uh, hostile territory in Iraq and Syria. And of Finally, the air defenses of Iran are very advanced, and we saw them shoot down the most advanced uh, drone that the United States owns over the uh, Gulf of Oman. And uh, as we see, the United States is not willing itself to attack Iran. So the, the Zionists have been barking in the wind like a wild dog uh, about attacking the uh, nuclear reactors of Iran. And as long as the United States is not willing to do that, it's not going to happen. Well, what the Zionists are capable of and what they've been doing for a long time now is conducting assassinations or destabilization, um, you know, movements in Iran and other, and other uh, countries that it sees as hostiles. So that is the maximum that the Zionists can do. 
And with this assassination of this colonel, we saw President Raisi of Iran yesterday, uh, you know, promise a, a response that will shake the Zionist colony. Maybe, yes, uh, this will be one of the multiple possibilities of triggers uh, in the region for um, hostilities to, to, you know, roll out on a much more larger scale, uh, both in Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine, as well as Iran. Um, what kind of, you know, I've been wondering because uh, the last time we had an incident, the um, Iranians um, responded fairly harshly, shall we say, by um, blowing up a, 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 um, a Mossad base in um, in in northern Iraq. Um, I'm expecting a fairly harsh um, response. I, I think the days when um, Israel could do these kinds of things and, uh, you know, Iran would say something and not act out violently, shall we say, I think those days are gone and I would expect a pretty, pretty strong reaction. What do you think? What are your thoughts on that, Leith? Yes, yes, of course. I mean, we also have to remember that just uh, a few weeks ago, the Zionists attacked Damascus uh, and well, outside Damascus and killed two officers that are part of the Iranian uh, guard. And the Iranians also promised then to respond. So the only thing that uh, delayed that response at the time was the election happening in Lebanon, where Iran, Syria, and Lebanon itself didn't have an interest to the to open hostilities while the elections are being conducted in this country. Now we know the results have uh, come out. Uh, we know that the resistance and its uh, uh, coalition have the biggest block. Maybe they ha- don't. They don't have enough to 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 form a government. But the point is, now the resistance has their hands freed, and they will be responding not only for this assassination as that happened uh, in Tehran, but also for the killing of Iranian. Uh, of uh, officers in Syria and the killing of Hezbollah officers that until now we're waiting for that response. And of course, as when Hezbollah promises a response, it will come. And when Iran promises a response, it will come. Uh, so much of the possibilities are all open right now in the region. And uh, all this arrogance that the Zionists are um, continuing to conduct themselves with is uh, going to increase the possibilities of uh, hostilities. The visit of Biden um, is probably going to be a good time for somebody to respond. Speaking of which, ahead of Biden visit, Israel launches biggest eviction of Palestinians in decades. After decades of demolition, rebuilding, and a more than 20-year legal battle, Israel's highest court gave the military permission to permanently evict more than 1,000 Palestinians and repurpose the land. The demolitions have sparked expression of concern from Washington ahead of a planned June visit by Biden, and the European Union has urged Israel to halt the demolitions. A U.N. human rights panel warned that the forcible transfer of residents would amount to a serious breach of international and humanitarian and human rights laws. That all sounds great, Laith, but we know that um, 
expressions of concern by Washington mean nothing. And we also know that warning, warnings by the EU, warnings by the UN also mean nothing. Laith Maroof. Oh, Wilmer, come on. I'm sure the Zionists are now shaking in their boots because of these concerns coming from Washington <laughs> and from the United Nations and Europe. I mean, like the Palestinians feel so much better that now all these um, states have uh, shown their concern. I mean, look, ultimately, uh, the Zionists will continue to genocide and colonize and ethnically cleanse as long as they have the power to do so. And nobody will stop them from the West because this is the normal activities of Western society in general, Western quote-unquote civilization, colonization, genocide, and ethnic cleansing is at the core of the, of the economic activities of the empire. And uh, therefore, the only thing that will stop this is Palestinian resistance, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, all these stories that we are talking about, we see clearly that the balance of power is shifting. The Zionists are losing their mind with these, uh, you know, actions of assassinations, as we saw, and or this mass, uh, uh, you know, ethnic cleansing and, and, and looting of land that is going to unfold and I promise you that the Palestinian resistance is not going to allow this to happen, no matter uh, what the Zionists think they can do. And no matter if Biden is there or not, actually, maybe it will be a, a good time to trigger a armed uh, confrontation and resistance in the West Bank uh, when the emperor is uh, arriving at the uh, war colony. There's uh, the Times of Israel reports in daytime raid, IDF clashes with Palestinian gunmen near Jenin refugee camp. I understand there has been some uh, gun battles and uh, possibly missiles used. Uh, what, what, what do we know, um, Leith Maroof? So this is Jenin refugee camp. It is the kind of the hotbed of uh, Palestinian resistance in the West Bank. It's been always uh, attacked by the Zionists, if we remember the Jenin massacre uh, during the uh, second intifada in 2002 and uh, this is also connected to the assassination of Shirin Abu Akhle, the journalist that covered that uh, invasion 22 somewhat years ago and was assassinated by the Zionists at the entrance of this refugee camp uh, a few weeks ago. So uh, the continuation of operations by the Zionists attempting to enter the camp uh, have been frustrated for the last uh, few months. And as we see today, this was a huge gun battle uh, and the Zionists had to withdraw. And the, for the first time in decades, as, as I cannot even recall in my mind, for the first time, the Zionists have used missiles to hit um, resistance positions at the entrances of the refugee camp. So this is a, a an escalation in uh, hostilities but it also shows you that uh, the Palestinians are not going to, you know, set aside an idol. They will resist and they are being very successful in their resistance. Uh, if the Zionists were hoping to calm things down before their, the emperor arrives, Emperor Biden arrives in, in uh, Palestine, this is not going to happen. The Palestinians are going to take actually full advantage of the arrival of the emperor uh, to show that they are a living, resisting people. 
At least six people killed in Daesh ISIS attack in northern Iraq. Terrorist group targets residents of Taza Kermatu district, where most Turkmen live, says Security Media Network. Laith, what are the details here? Well, this is a, a, an ongoing story. It's a, now have come and dominated the news cycle in Iraq. Uh, it was a, uh, two attacks. One of them, as you mentioned, is on this town that is mainly Turkmen. The other was on Mosul city in north uh, Iraq. And the resistance uh, coalition factions, of the, including the popular mobilization units, engaged uh, ISIS and defeated them in both locations. Uh, they have made statements just now. Um, you know, the resistance claiming that actually this ISIS unit was uh, training in uh, Kurdistan uh, in camps that are uh, controlled by the Barzani uh, family, which and, and for your listeners, if they don't know what the Barzani family are, um, basically have been in control of uh, Iraqi Kurdistan for decades. They're a dynasty that political dynasty that crushed any opposition. There's no democracy by the way, in, in the north, in Kurdistan. And now uh, the Barzani family are, uh, you know, making statements denying this fact that we wish uh, this is coinciding, by the way, with a, uh, a court decision from the federal court of uh, Iraq uh, that says the Kurdistan region has been looting the taxes on the oil and has been exporting gas and oil without permission from the federal government. So all of these files are tied together. Clearly, uh, we've had an election in Iraq uh, a while ago. There hasn't been a, formed, a government formed. One of the main issues of uh, this government, uh, whatever, if it's going to come uh, or, or not be in front of them, is to um, unify Iraq and, and expand the control of the federal government over its borders which means the control of export of the resources of the country uh, and an end to the lawlessness in uh, the Kurdistan region. Your thoughts on Yemen and the possibility of extending the, the ceasefire? Yes, the Yemeni people uh, have uh, today actually announced that they shot down one uh, Saudi drone over the capital of Sana'a. There was another uh, drone shot down in the north of uh, Yemen um, uh, yesterday. And uh, this, uh, the Saudis are claiming it's a violation of the ceasefire to shoot down drones that violate the airspace of Yemen. It's a, it's a, a violation of the ceasefire, according to the Saudis. Uh, you know, it's coming to an end almost, this uh, ceasefire. Um, I, will, I, I doubt that it will be renewed personally. I hope it does, uh, just for the sake of the Yemeni people themselves. Uh, unfortunately, also, this fire, uh, ceasefire did not uh, end the siege. There was supposed to be a lifting of the siege on the ports at the airport of uh, Sana'a, and that did not happen. We saw only one or two flights coming uh, out of the airport of uh, Sana'a. So, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to predict too much, but I, I really think it's not going to be renewed. <clears throat> Tomorrow, the 25th of May, is Resistance and Liberation Day in Lebanon. Quickly, uh, talk about the holiday. Oh, man, this is the most important holiday in the uh, calendar of Lebanon. In fact, for the whole Arabic region, because 
this is the most proud uh, defeat, you know, achievement and victory uh, for an Arab people to uh, expel a colonizer. Um, and uh, tomorrow we we're expecting Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, to give a speech. Uh, and uh, the whole country is, uh, is off celebrating. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that insight and analysis. We look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Common Dreams reports perverse Supreme Court ruling effectively ensures that innocent people will remain imprisoned. They say this is radical, this is horrifying, this is extremely scary, according to one public defender. How serious of an opinion is this, and what signal does it send about the ideology of the court? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's one of the top lawyers in California, if not the country. His firm handles police misconduct, including excessive force, deadly force, false arrest, illegal searches, racial profiling, and jail abuse. Attorney John Burris, as always, John, welcome back. Yes, good to be with you. I um, hate to be with you on a on a case like this, though. This is tor- horrible, and it's will have such long range and wide ramifications for criminal defendants and, of course, their families, because it really means that what the court is saying: we're not going to allow you to go back and rehash, find new evidence, and come to us at some later point and ask to have a hearing. They're saying we're not going to give you a hearing if you didn't get this done. Uh, at the at the trial law station and at the, your opportunity for appeal to a habeas, and you didn't get it done, you can't now come to us and say, we found new evidence, and I'd like to have a hearing. They're saying it's too late. It's too late because we want finality. Not that, not that it matters whether you're guilty or innocent. We want finality. And so that has become a public policy question that the state is, that the Supreme Court is taking from a public policy point of view. We want we treasure and value finality more than trying to find out if a person is innocent or not, even in violation of the Sixth Amendment. So let me ask you this, because I remember interviewing a guy who was um, he was the first person who was taken off of got out of prison because of DNA. And he was in for like 11 years, eight years and 11 months of that time. He was on death. He was actually on death row for murder that he didn't commit. They came up with um, some DNA evidence came up that and that was the first time they actually had the technology to do it. He got a hearing. Even that took a year. And finally, he got out. Are you saying that under the circumstances now that it's possible or likely that a person who in those circumstances wouldn't be able to um, petition the court for uh, action so they could so they could move on the on the DNA evidence? It may be. It depends. So, for example, now DNA is is the kind of thing that is is universal. So in a present day lawyer, your criminal defense lawyer is something they could ask for. Uh, and, and, and that would be a, a due diligence question. In the same way, if they didn't do it then, 
maybe could have been done at the um, at the appellate level, certainly uh, the habeas level that they have in federal court. And they're saying if you didn't do it there, you cannot come to us now and say we have now discovered newly evidence such as DNA that we should now be able to introduce. If the question really is, if you had due, through due diligence, should have uncovered this then, you get one bite out of the apple, then you get another bite out of the apple. And if your counsel was not effective in making those observations and failed to do it, there's a good chance that the court will say no that you have now barred from that. And that would be a real tragedy. Uh, uh, and there could be new studies that will come out in the future that the, the lawyers didn't know. But ineffective assistance of counsel essentially means that a reasonable, competent lawyer should have uncovered these items. And if they didn't do it, then you go to the next level. And a reasonably competent lawyer should have uncovered then. Now what the court is basically saying, if you had two in, un, incompetent lawyers along the way, we're not going to allow you to bail your. We're not going to bail you out by allowing you to now come in with a new lawyer who then says, "I have discovered, I have newly discovered evidence." That to me is just fundamentally wrong. That you should be able to go into court whenever possible when you discover there's newly discovered evidence, uh, and particularly if it's ineffective assistance of counsel. And the reason being is a lot of the lawyers at these early stages, particularly in cities where there's, you know, massive uh, crime, crime, many defenders, and sometimes you get the public defender, most of the time you get the public defender who is overworked, and you have that at, at various levels of appointments, then it's not so much that the evidence wasn't, should, should have been discovered, it's just that the people were not capable of doing it because of maybe time pressures. And so that, to me, is a wrong way to look at any of this. You should be willing to say at any point in time that if there's newly discovered evidence, and that mean, new means that through due diligence you did not discover it initially, then and should have discovered it if you had been duly diligent about it, then it just seems to me that it's wrong to then say because of finality, because of this concept that we want things to end, they're not going to allow you, in fact, to, um, to have a rehearing on that. And this has been a long-standing <clears throat> effort on a part of, part of the federal judiciary and certainly some members of the Supreme Court to really chastise and be very critical of the numerous appeals that take place by individuals. That sometimes uh, um, we'll see cases that are dragging off for 10, 15, 20 years because they've had the many opportunities to file different appeals. What this particular court is saying now is that's not going to happen. And the cases are not going to last for 20 years because we want to make sure that does not happen. And we want finality. And, and as a consequence, finality becomes more significant than the question of innocence or not. So that's, that's the disturbing part of this, this whole decision. Justice Thomas writes, Ad, uh, serial relitigation of final convictions undermines the finality that is essential to both the retributive and deterrent functions of criminal law. That speaks nothing of justice. That just speaks that just speaks and, and I find it repulsive that Clarence Thomas would write this. One of the things that they talk about in terms of having women on the court, having ethnic minorities on the court is diversity of thought based upon perspective, based upon experience. 
he of all people should understand that the folks that are going to be most impacted by his ridiculous statement are people of color. Well, I think that he knows that. Uh, this is a man who is almost in form of self-hatred. Uh, he has done nothing in his 30-plus years on the court to promote any type of equality, uh, certainly no racial equality. And every decision that he makes clearly is one that establishes and promotes the general population. But more importantly, this concept of, as I said earlier, about states making their own decisions about things. There's a majority on the court that feels that way. But I think that one should never have any concept of thinking that Clarence Thomas has any feelings toward the impact that his decisions have on the African-American community. And I'll tell you on a personal note, when he was being nominated, I wrote an editorial at the time opposing his confirmation. And I said, in essence, that this, he, Clarence Thomas will be an albatross around the black community's neck for 40 years. We've only got 30 in. But he's going to do. A, he's done a lot of harm. He's going to do a lot more harm in the next 10, 15 years that he's on the bench. Now that he has a supermajority, because there's no restraints. This has been. This is his court. It's not Robert's court. It's Thomas's. Thomas is the one that carries uh, the majority of the votes, and he gets to decide who writes the opinions. So this is opinion that he himself decided that he was going to write, whereas he could have had another a person. So that lets you know that that his horns are there and that he has his hooks out. And, he, and to him, the black community is going to suffer because they can't stand on their own two feet and do and lead life in a way that he thinks it ought to be. When I was standing in the social dynamics that people find themselves in or the ineffective systems, the counsel that people have, the lack of good, competent lawyers, he's like saying, so what? That's on you. And so that's what we got with this decision. Uh, unfortunately, uh, for years to come, uh, we will find that there'll be there'll be many people who we believe will be innocent, who will not have an opportunity to prove their innocence. And there may even be some death because, you know, if you're not going to allow it to happen, many death cases occur as a consequence of new, new death penalty appeals occur as a, as a consequence of newly discovered evidence. That evidence may not get discovered early. It may you may go through a couple of different appeals before you find out what the real truth is. He's basically saying we're not going to even let you have a hearing on that point. If you didn't get it done on the first two lawyers that you had, and even if you think they were ineffective in terms of their representation, that's too bad because we want finality on these decisions. And you are unfortunately, as a person, had your opportunities to do two different lawyers, and and you lost. And so that's the end of it for you. The question now would be, what about on these death penalty cases that we now have and whether or not they would then entertain any kind of stays of, uh, of execution on the grounds that some something new has come up uh, and that, therefore, uh, they should have another hearing? You know, it's entirely possible that they will let um, these cases stand and the, and, the, and the executions occur, even though there might be some evidence that the person is innocent. These, these are going to be tough issues uh, that are going to adversely affect the black community for years on end. Let me ask you this. What about, let's say there's not a new evidence, but somebody wants to, you know, they want to argue there was ineffective, ineffective assistance of counsel through, through, you know, writ of habeas corpus. Will that affect people's ability to do that? Uh, the question then is, if you've been convicted 
and you then um, file a habeas say at the next level. At that next level, if in fact the person does not discover that there's in, in, uh, that does not discover newly new, does not find new evidence, and the conviction is upheld, and then later you go up on a federal habeas, you try, and there the court is basically saying at this new federal habeas level where you had two opportunities to render the case of whether it's uh, assistance of counsel, you would not be able to do that in federal court at that third level. Because the way it works, you probably know, is you have a trial, then you have an appeal and, and uh, to that, and, and part of that appeal is, 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 a, is, a, is a state habeas, okay, which basically said under state law, you think you've been unlawfully uh, convicted or detained, and you lose. Then you jump over to the federal system, which is a federal um, uh, habeas, which people have generally had a right to do. At that federal level, the court is saying, look, you cannot raise the question of ineffective assistance of counsel because of newly discovered evidence. The newly discovered evidence should have taken place on one or two of the other uh, opportunities that, that you had appeals on. The appellate lawyer has to exercise some due diligence in finding if you claim there was ineffective assistance of counsel, you will not, you will not get a new trial based upon ineffective assistance of counsel at this new level. You know, quickly, two things. I think it's really important for people listening to this to understand who this is going to dr disproportionately, dramatically impact. I think about the Ray Lewis trial when he was on trial for murder in Georgia. You know, he was, he was able to afford competent counsel and he was able to go on with his life. O.J. Simpson was able to afford competent counsel and he was able to go on with his life. But the majority of the people in the system, they don't have that financial wherewithal. And so there's going to be a disproportionate impact on poor people in this country and on people of color. We have about a minute left. That's absolutely true. There's no doubt about that. I mean, the criminal justice system, the amount of money you have can affect the quality of justice you get. And if you don't have real money, most of the people who have lawyers who are appointed by the court, not the public defender. Well, the court-appointed lawyers don't often have money given to them to do the kind of discovery and the kind of investigative work that it requires in order to find someone um, not guilty or given the best defense possible. So. There's already a dearth of, of uh, money available for criminal defense lawyers, and now they're basically saying you don't have the money and you don't get it done. Therefore, you and you, but you still will not get an opportunity to bring in better lawyers at another at a different level and and uh, maybe have a possibility of having your case heard. There's no question that it's going to happen affect African Americans uh, the most, particularly in, in states of highly populated uh, states, but in, but in states with predominantly Hispanics, it's going to affect them too. It's always that people at the bottom of the economic food chain are the ones that are going to go into the criminal justice system, and they're the ones that are going to be impacted, period. So some might not care that these right. black people who are going to be killed or who are going to stay in jail forever, because there is a part of this country that says we need people in jail, mm -hmm. uh, you know, get them out of the economic market, but also to provide economic work for those people in jail uh, who are, or the are guardians of the jail, so the prisoners. So got to get that, out. Uh, there's an economic issue that unfortunately underlies just about everything here. John Burris, as always, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back.
Thank you, brothers. Well, folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Hill has an interesting piece entitled, Time for a Strategic Pause on NATO Expansion. They write, it's easy to understand why some would think bringing Sweden and Finland into NATO is a good idea. It would serve Putin right to have his illegal, immoral, and unjustified invasion of Ukraine end up more than doubling Russia's border with NATO. It would reflect what appears to be the majority sentiment in Finland and a growing majority of Swedes. But the desire to humiliate Putin and reinforce U.S. global military dominance is short-sighted and dangerous. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an American human rights, labor rights lawyer, and peace activist. He has contributed articles to Counterpunch, the Huffington Post, and Telesur. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. His latest book is entitled Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. Dan Kovalik, as always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Dan, is this piece an example of getting to the right place for the wrong reason? Calling this an illegal, immoral, and unjustified invasion of Ukraine demonstrates to me a lack of understanding of history and context, but the desire to attempt uh, to humiliate Putin and reinforce U.S. global military dominance is short-sighted and dangerous. Your thoughts? Yes, well, it is, and it does seem like possibly at least some of the uh, press and some people in Congress are well waking up to this fact. I think they now see that Russia is not bluffing, that they will defend their borders, they will defend their interests, and they will do so successfully. And that this war is showing that. And I think uh, finally some people are waking up to that. You know, Dan, I also think that one of the things, you know, because I see it online, I see it on Twitter, I seen it do see it doing radio all over the place. Um, particularly one of the things that hurt their cause was this forty billion dollars at the same time that economic calamity is upon us, shall we say, gas prices through the roof, baby formula missing, the whole nine yards. I think that the Europe, firstly, starting first, but the U.S. also, the politicians are going to have a very, very difficult time holding on to the narrative that the people must suffer dramatically for a foreign policy that they can't even, they can't articulate in any way how it's in the best interest of the working class. Your thoughts? No, that's exactly right. I think people see that. No, I mean, you see this glaring problem. When people are suffering in this country, they can't afford housing, they can't afford food, they can't afford fuel, and they can't uh, get baby formula whether they could afford it or not. And yeah, meanwhile, we can send $40 billion allegedly to Ukraine, though a lot of that money is just going to end up in the coffers of the defense industry. You know, actually very little of that's going to actually end up in Ukraine. It's more or less a money laundering scheme as a lot of these military expenditures are. Uh, so, yeah, people are rightfully angry. And as you say, how can the government defend what they're doing? Uh, 
not only is this not about national security, in fact, it is compromising national security. It is making us less safe. This operation is in Ukraine is risking nuclear war. It is risking a world war. Um, so, in fact, it's undermining the national security, the security of all of us, while the rest of us barely get by. So, yeah, I mean, I think as time goes on, governments like those in the U.S. are going to be radically changed. There are two statements in this piece uh, which I find to be really, really interesting in the Hill. The highest priority of the United States should be to bring this war to a swift conclusion through an immediate ceasefire and a negotiated settlement that is fair and durable. Yet the Biden administration, under pressure from Congress and the foreign policy establishment, has only ratcheted up its war aims from containing Russia to crushing it. I find that statement to, as we were talking about it at the open, to be very telling about a shift in in mindset. And then to Garland's point about the government not being able to demonstrate to the American people how this uh, United States boondoggle is in the best interest of the working class, we're now starting to see articles that talk about this war in Ukraine is a fight for American security. They're starting now to put that spin on this mess. Don't know how they're going to be able to defend it, but they now seem to be parroting that narrative. Dan Kovalik. Yeah, well, as you say, I, I really don't see how they can spin it. I think that it is correct that this war is about trying to crush Russia. And again, I don't see how that's to our benefit. Uh, you know, we were led to believe in the first Cold War that somehow destroying the Soviet Union was going to be international security. And frankly, I think history has shown that the world is much less secure after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And actually, it undermined uh, the working classes of the world because the Soviet Union was an alternative that required the West to respond with social programs, right? And once the Soviet Union went away, they didn't feel obligated to do that anymore. Um, and in the same way, I think, uh, you know, the destruction of Russia would not inure to the benefit of, of workers in the West. So I, I don't think that there is a policy that can be fairly articulated to the working class uh, that this is about national security. It's about the security of profits, which are way up and continue to go up as uh, the uh, you know standard of living of workers continues to decline. You know, one of the things I think that the discussion that has to be had is not how this thing ends, you know, but because it's obvious to me that the, uh, the the battlefield that Russia is going to win there and it's going to be a dramatic victory and however they choose to shape the battlefield is how it's going to end. Because in, in reality, uh, militarily, this is Bambi versus Godzilla, but, but the West, many people don't want to admit this. It is how the political landscape looks afterwards. We have a, a, a bunch of the MAGA Republicans now coming together saying they want to do a uh, take a different angle and they want to push, um, you know, pulling back on some of the foreign intervention. They want to push back against the neocons. And what you end up seeing is that the um, political coalitions that come afterwards can be 
right wing, very conservative or further right. They can be some manner of right and left. You know, so let me ask you this. What do you think about that whole thing? Well, look, I think if anyone in the halls of power are against war and intervention, I support that, you know, whether it's Republican or Democrat. It does seem at the moment that there are more Republicans and more conservatives against war uh, than Democrats. That is obviously uh, a sea change, but it has been changing for a while. This has not happened overnight. This is something that has been developing over the years. Um, Trump himself, whose policies weren't particularly more dovish than the Democrats, at least paid some lip service to ending the endless wars. And of course, he was uh, vilified for this. I mean, this is what Russiagate was about to to prevent him from making peace. Right. And the Democrats really launched uh, latched on to the Russiagate scandal, uh, including the base. And the base is still there in this real anti-Russian, uh, you know, stance. And uh, meanwhile, the conservatives are not buying that. So I, I do think there'll be some interesting coalition to come out of this. You know, the politician that comes to mind that kind of represents this is Tulsi Gabbard. You know, this Democrat who is willing to reach across the out of the conservatives, particularly on issues of war and peace, because she sees the conservatives as being more interested in peace. So I think it's an interesting development. I, in myself, I think people need to be open to a new coalition that will be based upon non-intervention. In the long run, do you really believe that the Republicans, if they regain control of the House and or the Senate, are going to follow through on this? Or are they taking advantage of the reality that, you know, 11 Republican senators can vote no on the Ukraine package because it was going to pass anyway? Well, it's a good question. Uh, Again, I think when you look at what Trump's rhetoric was as opposed to what he did, uh, again, I think there was a huge chasm between those two things. And I think what you're saying is true. On the other hand, if you look at how the Senate has been voting, it seems to me the Republicans have largely voted as a group on almost every issue, even when they knew they'd lose, right? They, They didn't. Uh, Right. And so in this case, I do think there's some principle behind those 11 was uh, how many people? 11, 11, 11 senators. Yeah. Voting the way they did, because they they usually don't break ranks like that, you know, regardless of what the outcome is going to be. So but, yeah, look, we never know with politicians whether they're just posturing and whether if they really had power, they would do something different. But again, my anecdotal evidence is that there is a large conservative movement that is against war, that has decided it ain't working. And that could end up changing, you know, the dynamics of the Republican Party. The other part of it is, and this is to be not to be the Debbie Downer, but someone's I got to say this. 
one of the problems I have with the Republicans is that they are a mirror image of the Democrats in that they'll say, no, are you kidding? We don't want Republican. We don't want war with Russia. You guys are trying to screw up Europe and now what's a mess? Oh, wait a minute, China. Yeah, we got to go over here and start a war with China. So the problem is that you've got still the problem is imperialism and imperialism. It feels that we have to be in charge of everything. So if they don't want a war with Russia, they may want war with China. So that's why I think, like you said, it has to be an anti-war, anti-imperialist movement that may cross ideologies or whatever, but just a Republican movement is going to be anti-socialist and they're going to hate China. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think, again, you make a good point. You know, someone, again, who I think represents what you just said is Tucker Carlson, who's been very good on the Russia issue, but yeah, seems to be kind of uh, good on Russia because he wants us to uh, to focus all of our power against China right now. I think that represents a huge part of the of the Republican Party. So uh, you're right. I mean, and 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 those who are truly principled, of course, are against uh, any attacks against Russia or China or anyone. But I do think again, there is a growing movement who has to see that our country's falling apart. Let's face it. I mean, I, I think everyone sees that. And we have to focus our resources on rebuilding this country and not on destroying other countries. And I hope is yeah, that there is a political movement that can be built around that idea. So with the minute we have left, to following up on Garland's point, the issue between the Democrats and the Republicans might not be policy. It might just be process. Because some believe, well, to get to China, you got to go go through Russia. Others don't see it that way, but but they both believe we got to get China out of here. Yeah, well, again, you may be very right about that, in which case there's no reason to be too excited about these 11 senators, right? Because as you say, they, they just have another victim in mind. Uh, but again, I do think there may be a greater a greater movement afoot that's against intervention with anyone. That I, that is what I do see that happening amongst the rank and file. And I think that's what's important. Dan Kovalik, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The New York Times reports the U.S. is considering sanctioning countries that buy Russian oil. The U.S. administration is considering imposing secondary sanctions on buyers of Russian oil as a means to deprive Putin of oil revenues and undermine Russia's position as an energy export powerhouse in the long term. This is according to the New York Times. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C., and he's the founder of Global Perspective Consulting, headquartered in Dallas, Texas, Dr. David Walalu. As always, sir, welcome back. Good to be with you guys. 
Uh, talk about this for uh, two things. One, this idea about secondary sanctions on buyers of Russian oil. The administration also is considering measures such as a price cap on Russian oil. How can the United States do that if Russia is selling directly to other countries outside of the uh, of the normal process? And finally, this also seems to validate to me one of the motivations of the United States behind all of this, which is the United States wants to play a bigger role in the international energy market. Well, that's very interesting development, as a matter of fact. But here is the thing, uh, 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 Wilmer. Your listeners need to know. They need to differentiate between the, what substance and what is just bravado. Because this is what basically is. This is nothing but a bravado. For, for a reason that the U.S. will not be able to control how the energy market on the global scale is moved around. Look no further than we're reaching out to Venezuela now, and there is a conversation behind closed doors in Washington about lifting the sanctions. Okay, that's one. Second thing, you look at now Saudi Arabia, which made it clear that, uh, made it clear in a way by sending messages that it will support Russia as a member of the OPEC Plus. Well, we all know what the role of the OPEC Plus. OPEC Plus, which, is, uh, which Russia, by the way, is a member there, coordinates with the regular OPEC as far as the global market. So that to me personally, as an analyst, it tells me that even if the United States moves into this direction of sanctions, it will take only one key player like Saudi Arabia to say to the U.S., no, no, your sanctions are worthless because if you keep doing that, they're going to be losing money and it's not going to work. That's why I don't buy this argument emanating from Washington that we're going to sanction second secondary uh, uh, sanctions and so forth. Look, we haven't done this against India. What makes us think that the U.S. is going to move forward with, with, with other countries? That's where I see it going. Well, the other part of it, and again, uh, Russia is selling oil to India in their local currency. They're doing uh, trading in rubles and rupees. So the United States has no way to deal with that anyway, to know what they're doing or how much they're selling or how much they're not selling. So that's the other part of these sanctions have pushed people away and, and de-swifting Russia has pushed people out of the jurisdiction of the United States anyway. Not only that, one of the things that, I, that I'm reading and I'm seeing now is that the Russians are still selling plenty of oil, but they're making more money because oil is a global commodity. And the only thing the United States is doing with these sanctions is raising the value and the prices of the commodities that Russia sells. So every time we start sanctioning a market of a particular commodity, that commodity gets more expensive and Russia makes more money. Your thoughts? Well, you're absolutely correct, Garland. I mean, uh, how would we, how would we expect that there are 10 countries in Europe now that they opened up an account for, for the rubles, which means what? It means that they are moving forward with importing Russian gas and paying for it in a ruble. So actually, as a matter of fact, the value of the ruble has jumped about seven, seven times or 7% of it. But here is the thing. And no matter what, this is why the sanctions doesn't make any sense. It's almost like, uh, personally, and this is my personal opinion, 
The U.S. sometimes talks without having a plan in place. You can't just be talking in a thin air and assume that this is going to work. That's like, uh, what are the sanctions going to for? As I said, I am looking at the real example of India. We all heard what, what, what's been said a couple of weeks ago when India said, no, 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 we're going to trade with, we're going to buy Russian oil and we're going to pay with rupees and rubles and that's it. So what do we end up doing? Nothing. So to me, this is nothing but hype because the fact remains is that we cannot control that market when it is conducted or transact in other currencies besides the dollar. Uh, retired Colonel Douglas McGregor has a piece, 30 years with no strategy brought us the war in Ukraine. And before we get to unpacking that piece, that title just makes me think about what it is that you've just said and how it, it appears as though the, 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 the more the United States seems to try to flex its muscles here, the more the United States alienates itself from the world and isolates itself because, to Garland's point, Oil is a global commodity. Wheat is a global commodity. Folks need to need to uh, they need to eat and they need to fuel their factories. They need to drive their cars. And the United States hegemonic control over the actions of other actors, they're now becoming independent actors. And this really just seems to be demonstrating the slide that the that the empire is on. Well, that's correct, Walmart. And this is what personally pains me to know is that majority of us here in the United States are oblivious to what's going on around the world. We don't seem to truly grasp and understand what's going on. Of course, we've got the mainstream media that is feeding the narrative and, and people don't want to think because thinking requires a little bit effort, intellectual that is. But here is the idea of, 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 of the statement earlier about the lack of strategy, which is true. And I look at it no further than, for example, do we have any strategy on dealing with China? No, we don't. We don't because we only think in terms of the next quarter. We only think of the next elections or whatever. And, and, and Ukraine war now demonstrated it so much to me. It opened up that Pandora box in, in highlighting how hollow our foreign policy is. And as a matter of fact, to tie it to the energy, Europeans waking up <laughs> to the reality is this is not only about their people heating up their homes in winter and cooling off their homes in the summer, which requires energy. This is now hitting the industrial segments of their society, which to me personally, and I tend to look beyond the end of my nose, I look for the next 15, 20 years, and it might even be sooner that the EU as bloc might be disintegrating before our own eyes. So the idea of not having a strategy for us for the last two years that led to this, I have to concur with that 100%. Um, in in, in uh, 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 Douglas McGregor's uh, article, one of the things that I think that stuck out to me because it's something that I've been, been, been commenting on a lot, he writes this, the question now is whether Europe's leaders in Berlin, Paris, Rome, and the continental capitals 
are willing to put their governments and societies at risk of internal political upheaval to maintain Washington's endless war in Ukraine against Russia. Here's the problem. I think it's too late. They have already stuck a knife in the heart of their economies, and I don't think there's any way out. I don't see how the governments in um, these parliamentary governments, starting with um, Germany, can possibly survive what's coming when the people in their society start to feel the pain and understand what these people have done in their you know, quest for the white whale Moby Dick. They've sunk the whole ship. Your thoughts? Well, indeed, Garland, and, and, and the idea couldn't be or, or, or the outcome couldn't be more clearer than how NATO's expansion has jeopardized the security of Europe in the long term. This is the fact, this is the reality that Europeans are not willing to admit because to me personally, they are living in denial. I just had a conversation two days ago or so uh, with some folks in Europe and, and kind of like, uh-uh. It looks like governments are in denial of the reality what's going on. And this is to Walmart points earlier about the United States pushing on individual countries. To me, the sign is start to be there. Look no further than the joint flight between China and Russia that took place yesterday in none other than the east side of South China Sea and in the southern part of Japan. And to me, that's an indication for what lies ahead. If the United States keep talking this, hot, this bravado, but there is no strategy in place. And sadly to say, this is usually the signs for the beginning of the end. This is, a, I think, a very good piece written by uh, retired Colonel McGregor. 30 years with no strategy brought us the war in Ukraine. He opens by saying that... Um, most of the strategic decisions to use American military power that were made over the last 30 years resulted in one of two strategic outcomes, abject failure, as in Somalia, Haiti, Afghanistan, and Iraq, or a new regional status quo that is untenable without a permanent U.S. military presence far from America's borders, as in the Balkans. Your thoughts on this, uh, because I think, he's, I think he's spot on. Well, you're absolutely correct. It's because those are facts. And this is what uh, the foreign policy establishment in Washington are not willing to look into to ensure that how we proceed forward will benefit us, American people, our interests, but not in this manner. Because here is the thing. If we keep pushing this direction and it looks like we are, even though there is now a push inside Washington behind closed doors from some Republicans that are pushing behind on this, agenda, on this foreign policy agenda, that is. In other words, they don't want to go with the plan that is. This is why uh, I'm sure your listeners noticed the 12 senators who have blocked the $40 billion. That's to me personally, is an indication for what's becoming. Because the direction where this is going, it, 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 it doesn't, it's not going to bode well for us and and how far can we push this and at some point you know it's gonna say enough is enough and we are already starting to see to me guys what saddens me is when i am seeing uh, gas prices are 764 seven dollars and 64 cents you know for somebody who has to have dinner and he has to put gas in the car to go to work so he or she can have dinner he shouldn't be put in that place because it was done by design. And that's what pains me the most. 
you will think the government is there for the people, to work for the people, not the other way around. You know, enough of these short blames of, well, the oil companies are profiting from this. No, 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 no. Is the failed policy or policies, uh, foreign policies that is, of the United States when it comes down to global order and how we deal with the rest of the world. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I think that they intend on dragging this out, that it, it, it's like we're going to make this thing the Afghanistan and the the, the Russians are going to get caught and, and mired in it. And, and unfortunately for them and us, it turned out the other way around. Well, that's true. That's true, because Russia already made it clear that this ain't going to turn into an Af- another Afghanistan. They are aware. They learned from the history. They learned from their mistakes, of course. But they also learned and saw when we got bogged down in Afghanistan. And I've been there so many times. And during my second trip, I remember back in 03 or 04, I was like, this is not a winnable war. You know, we better decide what we want to do the next two or three years before this drags on for the next 15 and 20 years. And that's exactly what happened. And what have we gained from it? Nothing except we wasted six or seven trillion dollars. In trying to make an Afghanistan parallel, what I see here in Ukraine is the United States may be sucking itself into the Ukraine. And they are, because, and they are because we just announced, Biden just announced that he's going to push for 20 more countries to keep arming Ukraine. What does it tell you? Dr. David Walalu, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.